Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. And Eric, we have made it to a second episode. Our pilot got picked up for an initial run, despite the fact that you didn't just go for an opening joke last week. You threw in a mid-podcast nuclear option <laughs> in the form of a Reuben sandwich. Despite that, we're still here. <laughs> we are. Uh, yeah, let's put a, a less negative spin uh, on it and, <laughs> and say that my Reuben sandwich joke was polarizing. Uh, you know, it wasn't for everyone. And I think, Kieran, you should just be glad that at the time that I made it, I didn't know yet that the referee of the Ruben via Ruben Cervera fight would be Lawrence Cole. Uh, I could have oh, figured no. out a way to work coleslaw into the sandwich joke, and then the joke would have been universally hated. Yes. Um, but on the bright side, the, the double agent bit seemed to go over well. Uh, not necessarily with our old friends at HBO. I'm not sure how they felt about it, but our new friends at Showtime seemed to like it. Yep. Anyway, let's get down to business. Um, we've been getting some questions on social media about where to find the show. If you're listening to this, obviously you found it somewhere, uh, but we certainly recommend subscribing so you never miss an episode. And you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Simplecast. And please leave us a, a rating and review on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Uh, nothing but five-star reviews so far. Please keep that up. Uh, also, if you missed it, we put out a special podcast version of the first episode of All Access Pacquiao versus Broner. And another one for episode two is coming. Uh, so again, subscribe to the podcast and you'll get them all. Yep. And uh, we have a really full show for you today. Um we will have a brief look at some boxing news from around the world. We will also look back on Friday's Showbox card from Louisiana, which, among other things, gave us a whole new definition of rope-a-dope. <laughs> and uh, we will chat with the man who called that card and who's called many fights, not just on Showtime, but also before that on HBO, Barry Tompkins. But first, it is fight week. Uh, 2019 is off to a flying start because this Saturday, live from the MGM Grand Garden Arena, in Las Vegas, Nevada, Manny Pacquiao faces off against Adrian Bronner in the main event of a four-fight card, airing on Showtime pay-per-view, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And we're going to save our predictions and our breakdown of the matchup, all the technical analysis and prognostication for later in the week. Eric and I will both be in Las Vegas podcasting from Radio Row on Thursday and Friday. Uh, so for now, what we'll do is whet your collective proverbial appetite somewhat by looking at some of the storylines that we'll all be thinking about and covering between now and then and some of the questions for which we'll be seeking resolutions and, and number one Eric what I think is one of the key elements here perhaps it's the key known unknown if you will of this matchup um, as we were reminded frequently during episodes one and two of the all access that you just mentioned uh, Manny Pacquiao is now 40 years old um, he's been fighting and fighting at a top level for many years and so the big question is does he still have it, or is he maybe hitting the wall? Um, will we see the old Manny Pacquiao or an old Manny Pacquiao, if you will, on Saturday? Right. Yeah, you know, once a boxer turns 40, you have to expect that he could hit the wall at any moment. Right. Um, if anything, uh, it's, it's a miracle with many of them that they get to 40 without having hit the wall. It's certainly amazing that Pacquiao has made it this far. He doesn't have the most self-preservational fighting style. Uh, he spent about 20 years fighting the toughest opposition imaginable. Mm -hmm. He got knocked cold once. He's been in some wars. Uh, if you'd asked me when he was in his prime, I wouldn't have guessed he'd still be active at 40, uh, or, or at least that he'd still be a top fighter at 40. Right. Uh, but he is. Uh, he, he's still in the world title conversation. He's still one of the most bankable stars in the sport. Obviously, he's not in his prime, but I wouldn't dream of throwing the W word, washed, at him. Uh, you know, he, he didn't look good in the Jeff Horn fight, but a majority of viewers still think he won, and it wasn't the easiest style for him. And then he looked great knocking out Lucas Matisse, who, as bad as he looked against Manny, Matisse was beating decent fighters his last couple of times out before that. I think it's safe to say Pacquiao is better than he looked against Horn and worse than he looked against Matisse, and still really damn good at boxing mm. and has absolutely not hit the wall yet. But he could on Saturday. He could at any moment. He's past the age where you take anything for granted with him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was going to follow up on whatever you had to say, but you seem to have unsurprisingly read my notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, exactly. I think, you know, it, for me, I, I do think it is 
the key variable here. Um, as you mentioned, especially with his style of fight, it uh, the style of fighting, it's the kind of thing that you know it, it it doesn't preserve the body as well as say a latter day Bernard Hopkins or Floyd Mayweather does. Right. Um, you know, he could drop off the cliff at any moment. And I thought, given the quality of the opposition, I thought that Jeff Horn fight, even though I had him winning by a point watching it off TV, I thought that that was the sign that it was it, um, that he'd gone as far as he could. But then, like you said, he did look great against Matisse, but Matisse, even as he'd been winning, still wasn't looking great himself. So maybe the W word did apply to Matisse, if not to Pacquiao. So, sure. so I, I honestly don't know. And I'm going to say this as a, little, as a little teaser for later. I'm glad we bumped our predictions to later in the week, because for me, this is actually enough of an issue that I am hesitating a little on my prediction right now. So okay, well, my prediction is already locked in. Okay, all right, mine is <laughs> mine is not. We okay. shall see. And you know how I always change my mind during fight week, anyway. Right. After I, so it's so who knows how many predictions I'm going <laughs> to go. And, and particularly if uh, Freddie Roach oh, gets exactly. in your ear. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. Following that bout that we mentioned with Jeff Horn, uh, Pacquiao split from Freddie Roach, who we just mentioned. Uh, he, Freddie, of course have been with him since Pacquiao's breakout performance against Lelo Lodwaba back in June 2001, can you believe? Good heavens. Mm. Um, and he apparently split with Roach without ever saying anything to him directly. Um, but now Freddie's back. Uh, Boo Boy Fernandez remains as head trainer, which he was for the Lucas Matisse fight. But, but Freddie is sort of consulting trainer emeritus, if you will, and they are training at the wild card. Um, there came a point where, you know, you were talking about how you would never have imagined Pacquiao in his prime, still fighting at a high level. If ever there were a boxing relationship that seemed destined to not fall prey to all the boxing relationship breakups that have happened, it was Freddie Roach and Manny Pacquiao. And yet we've had this breakup and, and sort of getting back together. What do you make of all of this, all these ups and downs, all these ins and outs between these guys? Yeah, it's interesting that you call it a, a sort of getting back together because it doesn't feel that rock solid. Um mm. It's really interesting to have Roach acting as an assistant to Boo Boy. That, that doesn't feel right. It's like uh, yeah. Fredo Corleone calling all the shots for the family and, and Michael having to answer <laughs> to him. Um, I, I don't know. Watching All Access, it looks a little uneasy to me between mm. Freddie and Manny. I mean, you know, you fire a guy and then you rehire him. It's usually not the same, uh, especially as, as you noted. Manny may not have ever told Freddie he was fired, um, but... In this case, they got back together. It seems to me like it happened because, you know, they're both nice guys and nice guys tend to make up and Manny knows Freddie is good for him and Freddie is happy to work with Manny and make money. Yeah. But it can't be the same after you go through that. Um, I think it's going to be fascinating on fight night to see who's talking to Manny in the corner, who's who's really running things, Boo Boy or, or Freddy. Um, you know, if there is any confusion or turmoil or lack of trust or uncertainty about roles, that could be really bad for Manny in this fight. Yeah, yeah. Stop reading my notes. Um, look, as the, uh, <laughs> there's a frequently misattributed quote, if you want a friend in life, get a dog. Um, and I think that's probably more true in boxing than just about any other walk of life. And I think if you're a trainer... You can be proud or you can be employed, right? Um, and it was kind of interesting to see the way that Freddie kind of swallowed it in in, in episode two of All Access. Um, you know, hey, I'm going to break up with a guy or end 17 years of friendship because of one fight or something like that. Um, my suspicion is that between Manny leaving and Miguel Cotto retiring and Freddie loved Cotto. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Wildcard was probably a little bit sad and lonely last year. Uh, and, and that, I suspect, was an incentive for, for Freddie to welcome him back. Um, yeah, I agree with you that what's going to be interesting is fight night. And Freddie knows whatever he feels. He's the kind of guy that he knows, well, look, I'm the assistant trainer. So if Boo Boy's talking, I'm not going to talk. And so I don't think there'd be a situation where the two are disagreeing or trying to give Manny competing versions of what he should do or anything like that. But it might prove to be a frustrating evening for Freddie. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, uh, Boo Boy sounded like he was appropriately respectful. Um, and, sure. and I, you know, didn't he? He, say, he was saying all the right things. Um, but we will see, indeed, uh, as to how it actually works out. On yeah, night. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see, if, if the going gets tough. 
if it's getting mm. difficult in there, I wouldn't be surprised to see Boo Boy kind of yeah. cede to Freddy, sort of yeah. voluntarily say, "What do you think, Freddy? Uh, what what yeah. should he do?" Or and let and let Freddy kind of kind of take over. That that wouldn't surprise me at all. I think it depends a lot. If things are going smoothly in the fight, you know, Freddy will will just kind of quietly do his job as the assistant. I, I could see that. But if it's a struggle and uh, and they need really need his expertise, uh, the roles could shift mid fight. Yeah, that will be interesting to see. Um, moving to the other corner, occupied by Adrian Bronner. Uh, look, he looks sensational on the way up as a, as a prospect and as a contender. But really, ever since being upended by Marcus Maidana, he, he's flattered to deceive. He's had his moments where he's looked really good. But in his last six fights, he is 3-2-1. and one. He's winless in his last two. Mm-hmm. And he's developed a reputation for being far too cavalier about his boxing, of having lots of talent, but far too little dedication. So the question here is... If he loses on Saturday, is that it? Will he have realistically run out of chances, do you think? Well, our colleague Steve Farhood had a great line on Friday's Showbox broadcast to describe this fight. He called it the legend versus the letdown. It's <laughs> it's a brutally honest way to describe Broner. Um, I covered his fight against Antonio DeMarco ringside in Atlantic City in 2012, and uh, I wrote a glowing article about Broner for Grantland after that. Broner was 23 at the time, and he just has not lived up to his potential much at all since then. Uh, He struggled against Pauli Malignaggi when he was a heavy favorite coming in. He lost to Marcos Maidana. He lost to Sean Porter. He needed a split decision to get by against Adrian Granados. He lost to Mikey Garcia. He fought to a draw against Jesse Vargas. Yeah, you look at those names, Broner has only lost to good fighters, but the problem is that he hasn't really beaten any championship-level yeah. fighters since probably Pauly, and that was close, and Pauly would admit that he wasn't in his prime for that fight. Uh, point being, Broner has been a letdown. He's a really talented guy who hasn't had the most discipline, and I think got by on his talent for a while and stopped learning in his early yeah. 20s. Um and that's not good. The all-time great fighters keep learning and keep adapting. Uh, so to get back to your original question, you know, is this Broner's last chance on this level if he loses? I kind of think it is on this level. I-, I think he'll still make some money. He'll, he'll mm-hmm. still be a name that other fighters want to face. But in this excellent welterweight division featuring Pacquiao and Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford and Keith Thurman and Sean Porter and Danny Garcia... I don't think he's in the mix to face one of those guys if he loses to Pacquiao. What, what do you think? Am I underrating how far a little name value will go, even if you're 0-2-1 in your last three, as Broner <laughs> would be if he loses this fight? Well, let me start with this. Um, I can't remember if you were a part of this or not, but in late summer 2013, ESPN had its uh, contributors make their pick for like the future pound for pound number one. Were you a part of that panel? That I, I sounds can't familiar. Uh, but if you're going to ask me who I picked, I'll tell you I can't remember. And that's not just because I made a bad pick. I honestly can't remember. Well, I remember who I picked. <laughs> I think I can guess who it is. <laughs> and it was Bronner. Yeah. Um, which in hindsight was a spectacularly bad idea, not least because at the time that the article was posted, I was at an HBO image shoot with the network's up-and-coming stars, including Terence Crawford and Gennady Golovkin. Um, <laughs> and Tom Loeffler, Golovkin's promoter, was incredulous at my pick and had no problem telling me in, to my face uh, what a terrible mistake I'd made. Um, but look, Bronner clearly has talent, um, but it's not you know what's in his gloves that's the problem. It's what's between his ears. And he does appear to be a spectacularly unserious person, which um, sort of depending on your perspective is infuriating or refreshing. So to finally get back to answering your question, um, I think what matters if he loses is the way that he does, right? So sure. if he embarrasses himself in some way or another, like if he's knocked out early or if he's just shuffling around the ring, losing every minute of every round, or if he does some kind of present unpredictable Bronnerism, um, then yeah, I think certainly at the top flight, enough's enough. But if he shows, even in defeat, if he's brave in defeat, and if he shows that he was really serious this time, he really tried, he really trained, he really took this fight as seriously as he possibly could, and he pours everything he's got of himself into this fight, then as you mentioned, the welterweight division is really, really strong right now. And there'll always be a good fighter looking for a marketable but not necessarily 
A-League opponent in between some of those big matchups that are going to be made. And if he really shows that he's got making the effort, I think he'll still be in that mix as a kind of, oh, I'll pick Bronner for a voluntary defense while I'm waiting for, you know, Errol Spence or Terence Crawford or something like that. So, so it's conceivable. It really, Bronner just can't be Bronner on Saturday. I think finally people's patience will run out if Bronner just pulls a Bronner. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's there are all different types of fighters and different ways in which certain fighters can remain attractive to TV and, and to matchmakers despite losing. You know, Gaddy is the classic example. Right. Arturo Gaddy, that people bring up that he was just so exciting, it didn't matter if he won or lost. But there are other ways to kind of get there. Uh, Amir Khan, uh, you know, we were just talking yep. uh, about him getting another big fight. He's one of these guys that he doesn't usually win his big step-up fights, but he makes it fun. He's always exciting. There's something uh, he has n- name recognition. There's something about him that uh, people respond to one way or the other. And Adrian Broner is like that, too. Uh, you know, he's certainly less thrilling than Gaddy, probably not as consistently exciting as Khan, but consistently entertaining enough mm-hmm. and just has a big personality and built up a name. Yep. And you kind of get the sense that, yeah, if, if he's somewhat competitive and performs admirably, He's going to he's going to keep uh, getting by on that name, getting opportunities again. Like I said, maybe not at the very top level, but still against other top 10 guys. You know, he's he's not old yet. He hasn't hit 30. Uh, you would think even with a loss here, he could have a, a few more years of being a high profile fighter, getting good opportunities because he has established that Adrian Broner brand, whatever that might mean to different people. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's the crystal ball. It's a little muddied, our crystal ball. Um, <laughs> but that's what happens to Broner if he loses and Pacquiao wins. So here's the question. What happens to Pacquiao under that same scenario if he wins and Broner loses? Specifically, does a Pacquiao win lead to, God help us, Mayweather Pacquiao <laughs> too? Uh, you know, I've heard it speculated by some in the media that if Manny wins and looks too good, that Floyd would lose interest. I don't think so. Um, I think Floyd Mayweather believes in himself and believes he will beat Pacquiao every time. I think the better Pacquiao looks against Broner, the more pay-per-views a Floyd rematch sells, the more reason there is for Mayweather to fight him. Look, I don't want to talk about this any more than we have to until it's a reality, but I'll just say that it's up to Floyd. Uh, If he wants to take that risk of losing his zero and go through the trouble of training and get in the ring with someone who isn't a 20-year-old bantamweight kickboxer in order to make, you know, another $100 million or so. That's his call. Um, I'm sure that Mayweather won't be fighting a Spence or a Crawford. I tend to doubt Pacquiao is going to fight those guys. Pacquiao and Mayweather make some sense for each other if Mayweather is going to fight someone. So uh, all I'll say is, if you really don't want to see Maypack 2, I guess root for Broner on Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think the key there to what you said was if Floyd wants to fight someone. I mean, I think, you know, maybe in his heart of hearts, Floyd feels that he's good enough now to earn bajillions from beating up boxing debutants from the MMA or kickboxing world. Right. Um, but maybe he feels that he's not good enough, like, to actually go up against a good professional boxer anymore. Um, he hasn't fought an actual professional boxer since September 2015. Um, he's gone through the motions of making his muscles dish out punishment, but he hasn't taken any punishment, not really. Right. Um, can he still? What does he think about that? And, and, and so, exactly, his consideration is going to be, I mean, there are two things that Floyd cares about. That's just one thing, and, and it's the number zero, and it's, the zero at the end of his boxing record and how many zeros right. after the first digit. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's going to balance them out, isn't he? And, he? and if he does think he can come back and beat Pacquiao, um, if, if he does think he can, then if the money's there, he might well do it. But he's also going to think, well, maybe there's another circus act that I can earn some money from and do just as well. Uh, so he's going he's gonna to make those calculations and he'll, he'll make a cold kind of consideration and, and, and do the sort of cost-benefit analysis and string us along Let's not forget that. He will right. string everybody along while he, de- while he debates with himself, even if he's already come <laughs> up with an answer. Um, but yeah, it's whatever happens, the ball is outside of an Adrian Broner win. The ball is really going to be in, in Floyd's core, as you said. 
All right. Well, we, we've done enough to play into his hands of getting the attention that he wants <laughs> exactly. and, and stringing things out already. Uh, please, please change the subject. Oh, right. Let's do that. We have a good undercard on this pay-per-view. Uh, let's have a look at the three fights uh, that are supporting Pacquiao versus Bruno. Uh, first up, the co-main. Badu Jack against Marcus Brown. 12 rounds, light heavyweights. Uh, two former Olympians. Um, Jack represented, and this, I must say, I did not know, Gambia in 2008. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> your, your Gambian Olympic boxing trivia knowledge uh, needs a little work, apparently. I, I was, I was going to do some research on that very subject. I just <laughs> never got around to it. Okay. Uh, uh, and Brown, of course, represented the U.S. in 2012. Uh, Jack is the king of close decisions. Um, uh, his last several fights have been either draws, split decisions, or majority decisions. He has three draws on his record. Although, fascinatingly, in only two of those, do his opponents also have draws. Uh, his fight with Lucien Boutte was a draw for Jack and ultimately a DQ loss for Boutte because of a failed drug test, which is quite fascinating. Um, that's a good trivia subject. Um, the most recent of his draws, of course, was against Adonis Stevenson. And, and here we should absolutely state that Along with everybody else, we wish Adonis Stevenson continued recovery uh, from the injuries that he suffered against Alexander Wojtek. Um, in that fight against Stevenson, Jack just simply left it too late to turn up the heat. Um, and But for one punishing body shot that allowed Stevenson to eke out a late round, Jack might actually now be the lineal champion. Um, so it's a pretty significant step up for Brown. Um, he had been slated to take on Sergei Kovalev last year, right. but because of legal issues, uh, he was bumped in favor of Eliodia Alvarez, who obviously took advantage of that opportunity. His trainer insists that um, those legal issues have been resolved, and those are domestic violence uh, assault claims, and there have been several of them. He claims that his fighter is in a, is in a good place. But, Eric, is Marcus Brown ready for this challenge? You know, I, I might not be the right person to ask because I was the ringside scorer for the toughest fight of Brown's career against uh, Hot Rod Kalajic in 2016, and I thought Brown deserved to lose that fight very mm. closely. Uh, but I did score against him, so that's burned into my brain. Um, now, the reality is, Many of the best fighters have a close shave or two early in their careers. Muhammad Ali had Doug Jones and Henry Cooper. You know, Mike Tyson had Quick Tillis. Oscar got dropped a couple of times. So, you know, maybe Brown just had his one hiccup and is better than that. And I'm in a position that's unique to me of not being able to get past mm. that one mm. fight so easily. Um, the key thing here is you mentioned uh, with Jack that he is a guy who one way or another just keeps finding himself in these razor close fights he doesn't blow too many opponents out so jack is the favorite here but you can make a case that brown is a very live dog and that he's at least good enough to make it close and i also on the card brown's 2012 olympic teammate rashi warren faces nordine ubali 12 rounds again for a vacant bantamweight belt. Um, Warren is not just a 2012 Olympian. Uh, he also competed in 2004 and 2008. But it's the 2012 games that are relevant here because that's where he faced Ubali last in the opening round. Ubali prevailing by a score of 19 to 18. So this is certainly not the first time that Olympic foes have met as professionals. Interestingly, almost every time the rematch in the professional ring throws up the same winner as in the Olympic ring. Uh, two notable exceptions being Lennox Lewis upending Tyrell Biggs in 1991 and Miguel Cotto defeating Mohamed Abdullayev in 2005. So, Eric, for that reason, or indeed for any other reason, is Ubali the favorite here? You know, I, I don't know if there is a favorite here. Uh, one point separated them in the Olympics. Uh, Warren is far more tested and proven as a pro, but Ubali's been taking care of business against the level of opposition he's faced. Uh, I don't know. T to me, this really feels like a 50-50 fight. Uh, and uh, a couple of fun facts that I'll tack on here. You noted that Warren fought in the Olympics three separate times. Ubali fought twice in the Olympics, two separate Olympiads. So between them, they <laughs> competed in five Olympics. Uh, that that feels like it's got to be a record. Um and uh, the other fun fact is that Rashi Warren made his pro debut on Showbox. Uh, he, he won that fight, uh, but uh, got dropped in the fourth and final round, cutting it very close. So a, uh, in Warren, we have a guy who's been part of the Showtime family uh, from the very start of his pro career. And in the opener, we have uh, Jack Tapora against Ugo Ruiz, uh, another 12-rounder. Uh, featherweights this time. Uh, these guys are legitimate punchers. Um, one's an up-and-comer. One's a veteran. So because 
both guys are pretty good at knocking out the other uh, their opponent. Is this the best bet on the card for a big KO, do you think? I think so. Uh, Tapora has six straight knockouts and 11 knockdowns in those six fights. Ruiz comes to rumble. He's been in fight of the year and round of the year contenders. I think either this or maybe Jack Brown. Uh, those are the fights mm-hmm. most likely to end in knockouts, but this should be a really fun way to kick off the card. Yeah. Okay, that is enough looking ahead for the moment. Let's look back a couple of days and talk about Friday night's Showbox card. It was a three-fight card, and in all three fights, the favorites prevailed in convincing fashion. First, heavyweight Frank Sanchez blasted out Willie Jake Jr. in two rounds. Then featherweight hot prospect Ruben Villa shut out Ruben Cervera over eight rounds in what will forever be known as the Ruben Sandwich fight. And in the main event, Devin Haney scored a knockdown and dominated Zolotani and Donjeni, winning a unanimous decision, which is just what both you and I predicted last week. So using our scoring system for the picks contest, we each got one point for the correct winner one point because we both said it would be a decision and one additional point for correctly predicting unanimous decision, meaning we have three points apiece, one fight into the competition. Uh, So let's talk about the main event, the Haney fight first. Uh, He was in total control throughout. He had the short right hook that dropped and on Jenny midway through round two. And to me, the only question after he scored that knockdown was whether he would get the stoppage or not. Were there times in the fight where you thought he was going to get that stoppage or were you sticking by your prediction, expecting Indonjeni to, to last the distance throughout? No, there were times, actually. There were a couple of times when I thought the stoppage might be on. Uh, notably, the fifth round, he was starting to tag him really cleanly. And Indonjeni was looking a bit ragged there. And, and then again in the ninth, sort of at the end of the eighth, uh, and in, and going in at the start of the ninth, he was also hitting him pretty clearly. And Indonjeni was just backing up to the ropes at that point. Um, but, you know, after that fifth round where he was really looking very good, Indonjeni then had... Probably his two best rounds of the fight, the sixth and the seventh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was I was impressed here. I I, I have to say, look, uh, as you mentioned, we both predicted a unanimous points win, but I did think Endonjeli would take some early rounds. I thought he'd make life difficult for for Haney. I thought he'd force him to fight ugly, at least in the early part of the fight, at least. But really, not at all. I, I, Haney was in pretty complete control. Um, after the slightly scrappy first couple minutes, um, he really took the fight to end on Jelly. Um, he was looking to try to get a stoppage. Uh, he was varying up his his offensive output quite nicely. I liked the way that you know, clearly end on Jelly was very awkward. Some guys are just really hard to hit cleanly, even when, as as we predicted he would do, he he dropped his left hand incredibly low. He's yep. just one of those guys that just has that awkward movement. And you could see there were so many times where Haney had his right hand cocked, ready to land. And then it was just, just not quite working. And that's why he switched down to the body and, and was really, really impressed um, with the body work that he, that he put in there. I, I thought it was just an all round, very professional, very good performance. He was, he was just a class above uh, end on jelly. Yeah, and the only thing I'd add in terms of Haney's efforts to get the stoppage and and moments where he was coming close is that you got to give him credit for really going for it in the final seconds of round 10. Uh, You have to admire that effort there. He was pouring it on uh, at least enough that that Richard Steele might have stopped it, uh, even though this ref (laughs) didn't. Um, But yeah, as you said, Haney did a lot of things well. Uh, I absolutely noticed what you talked about before the fight, being able to drop that right hand in over and on Jenny's low left. He, He did that beautifully as you just said um he was relaxed enough in the ring to mm-hmm. at one point throw a punch over his shoulder and behind Absolutely. his back coming out of never, a clinch certainly never seen that before <laughs> yeah um so and ultimately uh, i don't think we've said the scores yet he won by scores of 100 to 89 twice and 99 90 um so you know we talked last week about haney looking for a statement win obviously we were both impressed does this qualify as a statement win I don't know. Had he got the stoppage, yes, it would have been, I think. Um, But I don't know that it was by itself in isolation a statement win, partly because we also don't really know how good Endonjeli is. And it looks to me, the guys were talking about quite well ringside, but he just looks to me like he's a guy who's tough and awkward rather than really, you know, world class. Um, But what I think is fair to say is that this combined with his two previous showbox wins this was like the 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 punctuation on all of that this proves that he's passed the audition i think um you know it wasn't a state we mentioned tiafimo lopez last week Mm -hmm. it wasn't a statement win in the way that lopez had a couple of statement wins last year um 
But it is fair to say, I think that he served his apprenticeship. He's really focused on um, not being called a prospect anymore. It really right. means a lot to him. <laughs> um, uh, he wants to go up a level to start appearing on Showtime Championship Boxing. Um, and far be it for me to tell our new bosses what they should be doing. But that feels reasonable. It feels like he's in this better than a prospect, but sorry, Devin, not quite yet a legitimate full contender. Like, I wouldn't want to see him go for a world title in his next couple of fights, but it's perfectly fair now for him to go up against top 15 guys, work his way up through that list over the course of 2019, work his way toward a world title over 2019. Um, And clearly Showtime strongly behind the guy. Um, So, yeah, so it wasn't a statement in and of itself as much as it was, I think, um, like I said, passing the audition. Yeah, he certainly tried to make a statement with his mouth afterwards, uh, as you were alluding to there with uh, with all the contenders speak and uh, specifically dropping F-bombs in the ring. He tried to make a statement in that way. I don't know about you. I kind of felt that that was a little forced. Uh, mm. It didn't, didn't seem so natural to me. But um, in terms of what he did in the ring and has done, yeah, I, th- I think he lags just slightly behind Lopez on the mm-hmm. prospect excitement meter uh, yeah. right now. Um, you know, th- there wasn't a highlight to get him on SportsCenter here. And I, I right. guess that's what he needs to become the number one American prospect in boxing. But still, he, he certainly took another step forward, even if he didn't make a statement. Um, and by the way, I'll, I'll just note, you know, when we talked about his maturity last week, I didn't realize that he had dated or at least been rumored to date uh, Black China, uh, formerly a part of the extended Kardashian family. That has me questioning his maturity a little bit or <laughs> or, or, or he needs better people around him. Friends don't let friends date Kardashians. <laughs> Uh, changing subjects dramatically from that in the co-feature, uh, Ruben Villa was similarly dominant against Ruben Cervera, but was never much of a threat to get the knockout because he's a pure boxer. He won by three scores of 80 to 72. How high are you on Villa off this performance? Um, so obviously it was the first time I'd seen him. Um, and I would like to see him again. Uh, I like nice compact boxers. I like guys who are always in position, you know, show some good foot movement or good defensively. Um, I'd like to see more, but at the moment, he doesn't feel like someone I feel compelled to see more. Um, honestly, I kind of – I liked more of um, uh, Muradan Akhmadaliev, who we saw on HBO from Atlantic City late mm. last year. Right. Um, I liked more of him in his fifth fight than I did Via in his 15th. Again, it's that Lopez Haney thing. Like, Akhmadaliev feels like he has more something-something. Um but, you know, that said, I've only seen him once. He did a job. He was utterly dominant. I think also probably, I suspect that V is the kind of guy who looks better against opponents who give him something, who offer up offense and leave him with spaces so that he can punch between their punches. Severa wasn't doing that very much. He wasn't really offering very much of anything uh, except the occasional, like, slow overhand right. And and so Via was left kind of just pounding away on and a guy was just standing there in front of him. So I'd like to see him uh, up against the guy who, who's at least trying harder to beat him and throw punches at him, because I think that's probably what would bring the best out of him. I get the sense that uh, I enjoyed this a, a little more than you did. I'm I'm more in the camp of uh, really excited to see Ruben okay. Villa again. I, I just love his fighting style. He, he's so slick and skilled out of that southpaw stance, throws really fast combinations. I love when he stands in the pocket and makes you miss and uh, and really twists and digs to the body. Um, he's not a puncher. He's not going to rack up many big knockouts. But if you appreciate a hyper-skilled boxer, uh, RV4, as they're calling him, uh, <laughs> is, is, is is a top prospect for you. Um, I found it interesting also in this fight how Cervera started out as the aggressor, just, you know, for a round, round and a half and quickly turned into yeah. a counterpuncher himself. He decided his only hope of winning, I guess, was to land one big shot, and he was trying to do it via counterpunch. I give him some credit for attempting a plan B, uh, and I give Via credit for being so difficult to fight that he quickly forced Cervera to abandon plan A. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that probably shows as well that even though he doesn't have knockout power, there is something to those punches, because that right. was obviously part of the, the equation, I think, that, that Severa was going through. Like, okay, he, the guy's whacking me with these punches. I've got to try and figure something else out. Yep. 
Uh, moving on to the opening bout, uh, the story in Frank Sanchez versus Willie Jake Jr. was the 14-minute delay to fix the ropes, uh, which you referenced earlier with your rope-a-dope joke. Uh, we'll ask Barry Tompkins shortly about that fun little surprise. But uh, as for the fight itself, we didn't learn much from it. Sanchez got the knockout at 259 of round two. Could you get any real sense of Sanchez from this? And did the knockout look at all fishy to you? Um, well, to take the first question first. Um, yeah, it was difficult to get much of a sense from Sanchez of, of Sanchez from this. Um, but what, what I saw, I, I thought he looked decent, nice timing, good balance, very nice straight right hand, a good jab, patient, decent hand speed. I mean, he, he looked he looked pretty solid. Um, but you know, difficult to to say too much because of the the, the guy he was up against. Um, Sanchez, I would certainly want to see again. That's for sure. Uh, um, see him up against a, a perhaps more resilient foe. Um, as for that knockout, okay. Look, first of all, I'm not taking those punches, and it's always really, really important to emphasize that. Um, our job is really, really easy, and theirs is really, really hard. <laughs> Can never ever emphasize that enough. But you know, and maybe I don't know. Maybe he was. It was a case that he was. The, the force of one of the punches or maybe there was a body punch that had him kind of going over a bit and then it was that hook to the temple that that, that sent him down but honestly what i suspect is look you get into the ring you've you, you're full of adrenaline you're ready for the fight and then that first three minutes you're getting tagged by by his right hand and you can't seem to get away from that right hand and you're maybe a bit discouraged and at least you get back to the corner and you've got a minute where your trainer's talking you up a bit again, saying, hey, he's got a mouse under his eye, go get him. And you think, all oh, right, okay, maybe I'm still in this. And then one minute turns into two and two turns into three and three turns into 14. <laughs> and you're sitting there and you're getting cold and the adrenaline's wearing off and you've got time to think about your life choices and what your friends are doing that evening. <laughs> and, and actually those first three minutes kind of sucked. And now you've got to somehow raise yourself to do it again. And you're like, I'll try and make this scrappy and I'll hang on to him and the referee won't let you do that. And when the referee doesn't let you do that, the guy starts hitting you again and it's just sometimes you just think you know what this guy's hurting me and i'm gonna take an opportunity here and i don't know that there was anything in that final sequence to knock him out certainly not to send him flat onto his face and lay there for a minute i and again i wasn't taking those punches but i think that was more a case of wow this he was getting hit with clean right hands that were clearly stunning him and maybe he just figured it wasn't going to be his night that was some uh, some high level mind reading there uh, by you, uh, and 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 some high level equivocating before you, you yeah. got into all that. Um, but I don't disagree with any of it, uh, not surprisingly, uh, given our history. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could see on the replays that Sanchez did land two fairly clean punches, a right to the temple area, and then a left to the jaw as Jake was falling, but. Yeah, the way that he fell and just buried his head in his hands was weird. Maybe that temple shot had him all discombobulated. Yep. Like you, I too am not taking the punches. I don't know for sure. Uh, it kind of looked more to me like a guy who was starting to take some punches and, and knew what he was up against and decided to pack it in. But uh, to, to join you in equivocating, we're just guessing. We, we can't say for certain. That's just kind of how it looked to us. But we were just watching uh, on TV. Uh, what do you say we talked to someone who watched all the Showbox action from just a few feet away? Yes, and who was busy describing it for us and who may well have an entirely different viewpoint. Indeed. Yeah, so so far, through one and a half episodes, the signature feature of this podcast has been that it's hosted by two former HBO employees, now very happy to be with Showtime. But we're now going to completely change it up and add a third former HBO employee, now very happy to be with Showtime, although he made the move a long time before us. He is, as we mentioned, the man who was calling the action Friday night in Shreveport. Uh, he is the voice of Showbox. He is an inductee of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. But now he will be forever known as the very first guest on Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Barry Tompkins, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us and being our very first guest. Well, I'm flattered to be your very first guest. And I guess, isn't it true that everybody's an ex-employee of, of HBO now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> well, uh, you are fresh off, uh, Barry, uh, calling Devin Haney's dominant win over Zolasani and Don Jenny on Showbox on Friday night. Uh, this was Haney's third straight Showbox appearance. He's looked good in all of them. All he's lacking is that spectacular statement knockout. Um, do you see progress in him from fight to fight? 
I did. I did this time for sure. Um, it, it's a little hard to judge him on the Mason Menard fight because more of what Menard has done since, you know, he's been, he's been whacked now three or four mm. times. Um, so I don't know. I'm not quite sure what to make of the Mason Menard fight, but uh, I, I see it. I saw an improvement uh, this past Friday over the Burgos fight. Because um, I think the guy he fought was at least a live body. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Burgos, I think, was on. It's pretty fair to say Burgos was on the downside, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't stop him, and, and I know that bothered him. He really wanted to stop Burgos and, uh, because nobody else had. And he didn't. Um, he, he was determined to get this guy out of there, too. But I think this guy was a little bit more legitimate. You know, mm-hmm. he, I don't think he was ever going to win the fight, but he thought he could win the fight. You know, and, and you know, you guys have been around the sport for a long time. You know, sometimes you can just kind of look into a, into an opponent's eye and, and say whether he really thinks he has a legitimate yeah. chance to win the fight or not. And, and he did, he did, you know, he didn't have the tools to win a fight, but he was a legitimate opponent in my opinion for, for where Devin Haney is in his career right now. So uh, yes, I, to answer your question, I, de- I definitely did see an improvement in Devin Haney. I haven't seen any flaws yet, you know, mm. but it's obviously it's an incomplete story. Right. right. The, the only flaw might be that he, he doesn't hasn't shown that huge knockout power. Uh, that, but, you know, that's maybe not so much a flaw as just a one thing he doesn't do spectacularly well. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think Raul Marquez actually made the point, and I thought it was a pretty good point, that he doesn't have his man strength yet. Yeah. You know, um, you know, he's 20 years old. And it's easy to forget that that he's 20 years old because he's wise boxing wise. And in fact, world wise. Uh, be way beyond his years, you know, and and that's that whole thing. What the, his whole life outside the ring is another thing that is going to be really interesting to watch. I think as we go along. Yeah, yeah that that feeds kind of well into, into the, something I wanted to ask you. So I mean, after the fight, you know, he's really big. He had the word contender on his on his shoes. He wants to be a contender, not right. a prospect. He's talking about fighting for a world title this year. Do you think that's a good timeline, or would you slow it down a little bit, given that he is only 20? I think I would slow it down a little bit. You know, um, you know, I want to see him fight somebody who can hit him back and, mm. and see what, you know, that's the obvious thing. We, we say that about every prospect, you know, but uh, so I, I apologize for the cliche, but, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I do. I, I want to see somebody in there who can at least, cause him to take a step back and then see what happens. You know, I think he's got the goods. I, I, I really do. Um, but his, you know, his whole world, I mean, he lives, he's living a Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard lifestyle and he's 20 years old and maybe, maybe can now be considered a contender. I think if you ask my partner, if you ask Steve Farwood, he may still think he's just a prospect. Mm. Uh, from having been around him, and you guys were talking about this on the broadcast, um, can you talk to us a little bit about, and you've already touched on this a bit, about his his persona, his personality, his sense of maturity from being in fighter meetings with him, from from talking to him. One of the things that you seem to be really high on is not just his physical abilities and boxing skills, but the nature of the person that he is. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. It, you know, it's really interesting, Kieran. It's um he's the quiet in the storm. And, and believe me when I tell you, it's a storm. Um, I don't know if you guys have been around him yet, but Mm-mm. he has, he has an entourage and I'm not exa- exaggerating that, you know, I spent a lot of time with Ray Leonard. He has an entourage the size of Ray Leonard's, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he has, and he's got people around him that are more like Ali's entourage used to be, you know, he, he's got his own personal Bundini Brown, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I, I think we said on the air, or I said on the air, you know, I think it, it may be, it's too much, you know, mm. he's got too many people in his ear. I don't think he listens to a lot of them to his credit, but mm. for instance, uh, he's got this guy, his, his version of Bundini Brown is a guy named church. And, uh, and he's with him every step, everywhere he goes, he's kind of quasi security, but he's more just, you know, uh, he calls himself a hype guy, you know? Right. right. Um, He's not a bad guy. You know, I, I can't tell you he's a bad guy. He's a very friendly guy, nice, nice enough guy. But, but he's a clown. And, and the last thing in the world that this kid needs is a clown because the kid is not a clown. Right. You know, uh, his father, I, I can't criticize his father for anything he's done with a kid so far, maybe short of, 
you know, getting them a Bentley and having a Rolex and living in a mansion, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to, I, we've all, you guys are boxing guys, you know, we've all heard things about his dad, you know, and I, I'm not going to, I can't say anything about it because I don't know for sure. I don't know what his background is. Uh, you know, all I know is the hearsay that everybody else knows. Um, but I, but in all of that, you know, and he's got a whole bunch of other guys. I don't even know what they do. You know, again, it's it's like Ali. He's probably got a guy that carries the water bucket, you know, and another guy who, you know, or the spit bucket, I should say. You know, he's got he's got guys. He's right. got too many guys. You know, <laughs> we all say we're always talking about. Well, we need a guy. I need a guy. You know, <laughs> but I don't need I don't need thirty guys. Right. You know? <laughs> and <laughs> but in all of that. He has, it's clear that he's the boss, even though he's only 20 years old and his dad's in his ear all the time. Uh, and his dad's kind of his, uh, you know, he's, he's the guy that's making the fights and telling him where we're going and doing all this kind of thing, you know. But, um, but he seems to be the boss. And he himself strikes me as a pretty good kid who's got his head screwed on pretty straight, which is amazing with all the trappings that he has around him. Yeah. Yeah. I, be- I believe I counted 11 people in the ring posing with him a- after the fight. It was uh, like, like you said, he has a, a lot of guys. Um, but, you know, as as impressive as all the winners were on Friday night uh, in the three fights, one of the most memorable elements of the evening uh, was when two of the ropes collapsed after round one of the heavyweight bout that opened yeah. the show. Uh, what what goes through your mind as a broadcaster when you have to tap dance and, and fill time like that? It, you know, nothing, to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, and that you have to kind of, no, really, you have to kind of keep it that way. You know, mm. it's, um, you know, I, I mean, for me, I grew up in a time, I, I, I don't like to talk about the old days so much, you know, because frankly, it dates me, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, but when I started in television, I mean, there, there were no prompters, there was, there were no, uh, you didn't have IFBs, you know, the, mm-hmm. you weren't able to communicate with the, with the truck. Um, you better be able to ad lib. I mean, you just had to be able to ad lib or you couldn't survive in the business. And in retrospect, uh, I think that's the thing that has allowed me to do what I do as long as I've been able to do it. Um, you know, so I never really panic, you know, when, when it's, it's time to just tap dance, you know, and, and in, in the case of Showbox, I've got Steve Farhood who, right. you know, I, I can't say enough good things about him. And, and, um, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because I know you guys feel the same way, but, um, but he knows more, first of all, he knows more about boxing than almost anybody I've ever been around. But the other thing about it is I can, I can throw anything at Steve and I know it's coming back. So mm. when we're in a Phil situation, I, I honest to God, I never worry about it. It's, it's not one of those things like I've been in, in the past where you, you look at the top of your hand and there's sweat on the top of your hand where you don't have sweat glands, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and uh, there's none of that here. And and the main reason is that I've got Steve sitting next to me. So, we, you know, we could fall into doing basically the same kind of thing that you guys do, just kind of talk about boxing if we need to. So changing subjects to this Saturday's big fight. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, you've called fights involving so many of the modern greats, you know, Leonard and Hagler era through to today. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. where does Manny Pacquiao, who's still fighting at a championship level uh, at age 40, where in your mind yeah. does he fit in among the old timers? I, you know, I think in retrospect, I think, I think once he's done, he's going to be treated even more kindly than he is now, even though I mm. think he's needless to say, extremely popular, popular now, but I think his legacy will grow. I re- I really do. Uh, you know, an eight division champion. I, I mean, obviously that couldn't be done back in the Sugar Ray Robinson days, you know, right. but, um, but it's still pretty darn impressive. You know, I remember I did his very first championship fight when it was his first fight in the United States when he, when he beat the South African for the junior featherweight championship. And I mean, beat him is an understatement. Yeah. You know, I mean, he destroyed this guy who was the, who was the champion. And I, I had never heard of Manny Pacquiao, yeah. never heard of him, hmm. you know, and, uh, and from right there, you know, I knew that this guy's, this guy's special. I didn't think he was going to go on to have the kind of success he has, but I think history is going to really treat him kindly. And, you know, I, I, because he's not an American, I don't know if he's going to, you know, be in that Sugar Ray Leonard, Sugar Ray Robinson, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali category, you know, but um, 
but I think I, I think he's going to be considered one of the you know in that in that conversation of the best. Mm. Um, so, so who do you see as the bigger question mark in this fight, uh, Pacquiao because of his age, or Broner because of his questionable focus and, and discipline? Who who do you feel like? you can be less certain what you're going to get in the ring uh, uh, on Saturday. But for me, it's definitely Broner. Uh, okay. I, you just don't know who's going to show up, you know? Okay. Um, you know, he's a guy, I, I, I look at him and I just kind of shake my head and say, it's just a shame because I think, I think he's got mad skills. You know, I, I really do. And when I first saw him, I thought, well, this guy could really be something special. I think Al Heyman thought he was going to really be something special too. I think, I think Al thought that he was going to be his bell cow, you know? And, um, I don't know. He's just, you know, he's, it would be easy to dismiss it by saying he's immature, but I think it's more than that. I think he's, he just doesn't get it. You know, he's just one of those guys, uh, you know, I equate him to, to Macho Camacho. I always used to say about Macho Camacho, you know, he's going to wind up dead in an alley someday, you know, and I I don't want to, I don't want to vocalize that about, about Broner, but I, I, I see that path being very similar and it just, I don't know. It, it saddens me because, you know, really skilled guys like he has the potential to be, you guys know, they don't come around all that often, you know? So when they're here, you know, you, I want to see him blossom, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think would do the sport a ton of good if he, you know, if he did do the right things and he got out of it with some money and he was a face, you know, for the sport, but instead it's the opposite. And, uh, and I can't see it changing now. Right. Well, yeah. you, you were you were worried about uh, dating yourself. I, I think you effectively undated yourself, Barry, by correctly using the term "mad skills" on the on the podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I work on that. You know, I have a list of of oh, oh so hip uh, terms that I try to use. <laughs> yeah, we try them on the on the podcast too, and it just it just never works. Yeah, how's, right. How's that going? Yeah. No, <laughs> okay. Some would some would say uh, our skills at podcasting are not necessarily mad. Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's very funny. So, I mean, you know, following on from what you were just saying about Broner there, I mean, obviously you see so many different prospects come through on Showbox, and, and some of them pan out really well. Some of them don't at all. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to tell where they're going to go. How many do you think compare? Are there very many that you put above Broner in terms of natural talent? Because I was the same as you. I thought the guy was going all the way, and he's had a good career but it feels like he hasn't achieved what he could have done. In terms of natural talent, had Adrian Bronner been a showbox product, where do you think you'd place him on the list? Um, you know, of the guys that, that we've seen, I'm trying to think of the people that have come along even just since I've been doing it. And of course, now my mind's a total blank. But uh, but there's, uh, we talked about Devin Haney. I think Devin Haney has a real legitimate chance. Mm. Uh, you know, to go back to some of his things again, I, I can see... I. Uh, again, this is just from having been around the sport for a long time. I could see that whole thing just blowing up, especially mm-hmm. if he loses, where he gets rid of everybody and just says, okay, now I'm just going to be Devin Haney. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that happening down the road. And and you guys have been around so much, too. You know, uh, I'll pose the question to you. How many father-son relationships in boxing have worked out, you know, right. to, to the very best possible way, you know? Uh, so, But all of that said, I think he's – I think he's a very talented guy, and I think he's got a chance to be, you know, in that Adrian Broner category. And when I say in that Adrian Broner category, I mean what I expected Adrian Broner might be. Uh, I think the guy Jerron Ennis in Philadelphia ha- has a real chance, too. I don't think he's as far along yet as, as Haney. He might be in terms of skill level, but he's not in terms of who he's fought. He needs to, he needs to step up his opponents a lot. I think we're going to see him. Uh, in March. Um, so um, I think those two guys are the two guys that for me right now on Showbox uh, are really, are really shining. You know, it, it, I, I should tell you, I mean, I love doing the Showbox series and the reason I do, and we have some really good fights on that, on that series because these guys are getting matched tough for the first yep. time. And, uh, and as a result of that, you know, it, uh, some of the most entertaining, I'm not trying to sell the show, but it's some of the most entertaining fights are the, our fights, generally speaking, are, are better than the fights on the championship series, you know, um, because they're competitive. And, uh, so we've seen a number, I've, I've seen a number of guys come along, uh, who I thought were pretty good and they either get stopped or they, 
just don't have it uh, when they get on Showtime, you know, uh, on Showbox. So um, it's a great proving ground, you know, and, but, you know, again, it's a long way about answering your question. Uh, I'm sure we've had some Showbox graduates who, who have gone, I know we have, you know, have gone on to, to put themselves up in that Adrian Broner category. But uh, I mean, we had Mikey Garcia, you know, we've had right. a number of guys, um, Earl Spence, you know, mm. um, most all the guys that are right. And I think Earl Spence has a chance to really be, I think he's yeah. very good now. And I think he has a chance to really be good. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I don't know, but you guys can tell me why is Mikey Garcia fighting him? You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yeah, because um, uh, Mikey uh, Mikey Garcia apparently has a lot of self belief. That's one thing. We're yes, learning. yes. Well, he does, and I got to give give him credit for it. I mean, you know, there's mm-hmm. so many guys that that dodge big fights or dodge guys they they're not certain they can beat. That yeah, I give him a lot of props for for you know just going and doing it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think he can win. You know, but uh, and I haven't talked to anybody who thinks he can win. But uh, but it's you know. He, it it takes them to put thirty nine and zero on the on the yep. line against a guy who a lot of people think is you know maybe the best pound for pound guy around. Yeah. So um, you know uh, there are, I think there are some guys and I think that's what Showbox does is get guys to that Adrian Broner stage. You know, in all of that, I never did answer your question. <laughs> I'm sorry, and that is an illustration of how you tap dance right, right there. There it was exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk for minutes and say absolutely nothing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, we we could listen to you say either something or nothing for hours on end. We we, we enjoy it either way, Barry. Um, I, I've made a career out of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us on the podcast. I know that uh, Showbox returns February first in, in Rochester, New York, with uh, Ronald Ellis against DeAndre Ware. So we'll be looking forward to uh, to seeing you on our TV screens then. Uh, but for now, thanks uh, thanks again, Barry, for coming on the podcast. I, I appreciate it. I'm great admirers of both of you guys too, honestly. Thanks, thanks, much, Barry. Man. All right, uh, before we go, time for a quick roundup of some of the news items that have caught our eye from the world of boxing generally. Um, number one. Frank Warren telling ESPN that uh, Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder 2 will take place in the first half of 2019, probably in Las Vegas. But the deal isn't done yet. Uh, Eric, of all the combinations of Fury, Wilder and Anthony Joshua, is this the one you want to see? I'm into any of those combinations. Uh, um, I will say this rematch makes all the sense in the world, but. I was half expecting one of these guys to fight Joshua because that's got to be the bigger payday for either of them, right? Uh, Joshua Fury is an insanely enormous fight in England. You'll sell out Wembley Stadium without having to put a penny into promotion. And Joshua Wilder is the puncher versus puncher fight that people have been talking about for a couple of years now that you can sell pretty effectively on both sides of the pond. Joshua is the money man. I could easily have seen one of these guys getting that money, but... If indeed this deal gets done and they fight each other, it's about unfinished business. The the the, the fight was a draw. Uh, that laugh indicates to me you had the words unfinished business jotted down in your notes. Is Am there I correct? A, is there like a nanny cam or something in my office? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that I'm willing to talk about publicly. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the fight was a draw. Uh, Fury feels he deserved to win. Wilder was about as close as you can get to a knockout win without getting it. So I'm psyched for them to do it again, uh, but I'll just note that after that, Joshua has to get in there with the yep. winner, assuming someone wins next time. Uh, you know, AJ's been fighting solid opposition himself, but the D word will start to get thrown around yep. if if he doesn't face Wilder or Fury later in 2019. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'd be the same. I'm the same as you, unsurprisingly, in that any combination is fantastic. Um, not just acceptable, but fantastic uh, for for the heavyweight division and for boxing. But yeah, it does. Like as, as I laughed, it is a case of unfinished business because of the way that that fight first fight ended. It does kind of feel that these two need to uh, sort out definitively their deal. And also, you know, Dylan White has actually done enough to earn himself. There's still a little bit of unfinished business between AJ and Dylan White too. And so I wouldn't be at all surprised if we get AJ against Dylan White. Fury against Wilder, but then boom, it's got to happen after that. The winners have to face each other. And, and assuming that it, AJ gets past Dylan White, then yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it is exciting to think that we might actually see at least 
you know, two of the possible combinations uh, over the course of 2019. That would be fantastic for boxing. Yep. Yep. Um, okay, item number two. We have two fight cards coming up next weekend besides our Showtime pay-per-view. Um, on ESPN Plus, Friday from Verona, New York, uh, Bryant Jennings against Oscar Rivas. Uh, it's a quality step up uh, for the unbeaten Rivas. We also have Shakur Stevenson on the undercard. Are uh, you intrigued by this fight at all? Moderately intrigued. Uh, we know what we have with Jennings. We don't know what we have with Rivas, an undefeated heavyweight. I'm always at least a little interested to learn what we have. But... You know, there's so much boxing on TV and streaming these days. I know this is a weird thing to complain about, but there's a lot. So even for a guy who works in this industry, this might fall under the category of find out after the fact what happened and then watch it or watch some highlights if it turns out to have been something worth watching. Yeah, I have a soft spot for Brian Jennings. He was um, one of the most accessible and amenable guys I interviewed um, with HBO. Just a really good, articulate guy. Um, and I was trapped in an elevator with him once. So, you know, that kind of, there's, there's a bonding, bonding there. So yeah, but, but yeah, I'm possibly the same as you. And in fact, to, to sort of make the point that same day, that Friday, um, we have also on DAZN from the MSG theater, uh, Demetrius Andrade against Artur Akovov and Jorge Linares taking on Pablo Cesar Cano. It feels like it's another treading water fight for Demetrius Andrade. Is he ever going to get a big fight? And is it his fault that he hasn't gotten a big fight? Um, maybe a little bit in that if he were, if he would produce a more entertaining performance in the ring, it would uh, make it a little easier for someone to want to fight him, for the money to be there, for the interest to be there. So I can hold that against him. Uh, but if he's ever going to get one, I don't know. It's so frustrating. You look at his last few fights, Jack Kulke, Alantes Fox, Walter Kautandakwa. He... He almost had a Billy Joe Saunders fight, and then he didn't. Uh, I worry that by the time the big fight finally comes for Andrade, it's going to be too late. Yeah, and I mean, one assumes he signed with the zone to get himself in that Canelo mix. Um, We'll see. We'll see, uh, you know, if that happens or not. But, uh, you know, if if he was as exciting in the ring as he is at talking— He'd have that big fight. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably Demet- partly Demetrius Andrade's problem here. All right. Item number three. Uh, Kelly Pavlik was on the Joe Rogan podcast recently. And among other things, he said he wants to return to boxing at Cruiserweight against anyone except Alexander Usyk. Um, I think this is partly our fault. Uh, we <laughs> we uh, uh, had Kelly on the podcast uh, for in Las Vegas, I think for, if I recall correctly, the first Golovkin-Canelo fight. Um and he came into the media into the media center and he was getting swarmed because people hadn't seen him for a long time. And I remember him saying to us, I think it was off the podcast, um, why wow, this is great. Make me this makes me feel like I'm the one here, you know, fighting because mm-hmm. he suddenly he was getting all this attention again. And, you know, and he's gotten a bit of attention. He's been doing his own podcast. Um, and boy, that's one of the things that boxers have a really hard time shaking off is is once you get that back in that limelight there. Um, one of the things that we certainly noticed, you cannot help but notice, and at first people didn't recognize him, is that his body shape is indeed completely different to what it used to be. He's, he's been, you know, a semi-pro weightlifter now. Um, so he's certainly never coming back as a middleweight. What is your level of interest? Do you think he's serious? And what is your level of interest in seeing him come back? Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's serious. Uh, it doesn't mean he'll go through with it, but I don't think he would have mm. said it if he wasn't at least thinking about it seriously. My gut reaction, immediate response was that I'm not interested. You know, stay retired. These comebacks yep. rarely go well. But then I thought about it some more. He's only 36, uh, a presumably somewhat well-preserved 36, uh, the same age as Gennady Golovkin. They were actually born just four days apart. Um, yeah. And... He's being realistic in the sense that he's acknowledging he wants no part of Usyk. That's kind of good right. to hear. Um, there are some other good cruiserweights out there, but nobody else who's unbeatable. Um, I'm kind of interested to see Pavlik give it a shot. I don't hate this comeback idea, especially if he has a little something gnawing at him that he has to get out right. of his system. You know, it, it's it's hard to walk away for good if you still believe you have it and think you could have done more. Most boxers need someone to show them, no, you don't have it. No, you can't do any more than this. Um, So I respect Kelly Pavlik's right to go get in the gym, take a tune-up or two, and find out. Yeah, my reaction is basically, you know, 
what you alluded to there that, you know, come on, you, you've got your life together. You seem to be doing well. You seem to be very happy. Why not stay retired? But it's not my life, is it? Um, and the manner in which Pavlik retired from the ring, it wasn't because he was getting a bunch of beatings. It was as much as anything what was going on in his personal life. You know, he was drinking heavily and, and, and life just wasn't going that great for him. And he's clearly got his, his act together. Um, so... Yeah, I understand he would have to change his body shape considerably. I mean, he's really top heavy. He's built more like an MMA guy than than a boxer these days. But, you know, the fact that he says, yeah, anyone but Usyk suggests that, you know, it could be one of those comebacks that's that's okay because he's not coming back necessarily with desires to be the best in the world. But like you said, maybe to just scratch an itch a little bit. Um, Even though we earn our living from talking about boxers, I'm always happy when boxers retire healthy and stay out of the ring. So I definitely definitely have that feeling, but um, we'll see. We'll see if he he does follow through with it or not. All right, that will do it for now for episode two of our podcast. Uh, We will be back Thursday and Friday, live from Las Vegas, with a full breakdown of and predictions for Pacquiao Broner. And hopefully we'll also be uh, joined by an abundance of guests as we build up to Pacquiao Broner on Showtime pay-per-view live from the MGM Grand, beginning 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on Saturday the 19th. Uh, But until Thursday, this has been Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks for listening.